and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks 13 questions of Colgate University community members. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming to the podcast Professor of Environmental Studies and Africana and Latin American Studies, April Baptiste. Baptiste is also the Associate Dean of the Faculty for Global and Local Initiatives. Her research looks at the intersection of environmental psychological variables and environmental justice issues within the Caribbean region. Her research projects have examined the relationship between environmental attitudes and concerns toward oil and gas drilling in Trinidad, the relationship between environmental justice and the sitting of aluminum smelters within the same context and knowledge, and perceptions and behaviors related to climate change in the Caribbean. Locally, Baptiste's research in the U.S. is focused on food access for low-income residents of central New York. Baptiste is the co-author of Revitalizing Urban Waterways, Streams of Environmental Justice, published in 2018, and she is the author and co-author of more than 30 journal articles and book chapters. Baptiste earned her bachelor's degree from the University of West Indies in St. Augustine, Trinidad, and her PhD from the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. She also holds a Certificate of Latin American Studies from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Professor Baptiste, welcome to 13. Thank you so much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yes, absolutely. Um, Let's start at the top and talk a little bit about your research interests in general and how you decided to focus on issues of environmental justice in the Caribbean. That's... uh... A really interesting question. So I I won't give you my life story, um, but what I would say is that my interest in the environment really started um, from my childhood days. Um, So, you know, as you said in my bio, I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, actually. Um, And I grew up in a very rural part of Trinidad and Tobago, so in the southern part of the larger island, which is Trinidad. And my backyard was literally the environment. So, um, you know, people that um, know me, that are close to my family, um, they knew I would sing to the grass (laughs) Uh, because I did have um, a a real affection for the physical environment. I'll climb trees. You know, fruit trees was just something that I was just accustomed to. And so that's sort of where my love for the physical environment would have started. I think that my interest and passion for environmental justice also started around that time without necessarily knowing that that's what I was being shaped for. So while I grew up in a rural area, it was also an oil and gas drilling area. Mm. And so I would actually walk through um, oil and gas fields to get to and from school. And I would see, they call them pumping jacks. Um, You know, Texas probably have a lot of them. Um, I'll I'll see the pumping jacks. I'll see the oil. I'll see the the oil company vans and vehicles and trucks, you know, driving on the road. Now, as a young child, you know, that was normal for me. I didn't think anything was wrong with that. Um, So you pause. That's my life. That's my young childhood. And then I come and I do my PhD in the United States and all of a sudden, you know, I'm reading about these concepts of marginality and extractivism, et cetera. And then I'm like, oh, 
I was living this mm. at some point in my life. Um, and so I think that that's sort of where the interests would have um, started, particularly with respect to environmental justice issues. Um, and uh, I also was living in a rural about 30 minutes from the coast. And so I always had an interest in the coastal community, the coastal environment. And so that's where my passion for the ocean and hence fishers mm. would have um, also started. Okay. You teach a core course here at Colgate titled Environmental Justice 200, Introduction to Environmental Justice, which is required for all environmental studies majors and minors. And we've covered this on the podcast in the past, but for people who maybe haven't heard those episodes, can you explain what exactly is environmental justice? Mm, for sure. Um, so how I describe environmental justice to my students is that environmental justice is a concept, right? So it's this uh, particular concept. It's a field. It's a movement. And um, at the end of the day, what you have is that um, it's a practice. Mm. And so what, you, what we look at within environmental justice is looking at the ways in which marginalized populations, and there are different ways that you would define marginality, but the way in which marginalized populations are disproportionately exposed to environmental harms. Mm. And so those environmental harms vary, right? Um, it would have started with exposure to pollution and the health concerns that marginalized populations would have faced, particularly within the United States. And so the variable of marginality there would have been particularly race and income. But you know, over the years, it would have started like in the late 70s, early 80s, so 40 plus years now, it has grown to look at not just pollution issues, but all forms of environmental threats. So you have natural disasters, climate change, which is where my research sort of um, is really positioned, you know, issues of uh, energy, for example, um, you know, all of these environmental um, harms are part of the of the definition. So it's really trying to understand why is it that these marginalized populations face disproportionate harms when it comes to environmental um, issues. And it really pushes against this notion that um, environmental harms are not necessarily arbitrary they're not necessarily happenstance, but there is a certain amount of systematic, deliberate intentionality and targeting mm. that may be associated with uh, environmental harms. Mm. So what would you say are the major differences between environmental justice issues in the U.S. versus those in the Caribbean? Mm -hmm. So I'll start by saying... When I think of environmental justice issues, and that's actually one of my recent papers that I wrote, when I think of environmental justice within the U.S., it's classic, right? What I call seminal research. So people like Robert Bullard, um, Bunny and Brian, Dosita Taylor, these are classic authors. They defined um, environmental justice really around the notions of race and the way in which particularly BIPOC populations have been exposed starting with pollution, as I just mentioned. And so that's one of the, the, the main issues. Within the Caribbean, those variables of race are a little bit more nuanced, right? Um, when you think about the Caribbean region, um, we had gone through 500 plus years of colonialism, 
right? Um, and so, uh, you know, you had a slavery influencing, and so you have that history. And so while while we do have an understanding that we were subjected to coloniality um, by an external power, the majority of our Caribbean nations are actually black or will identify as black or will identify as people of color. So, for example, in Trinidad and Tobago, you have African descendants, but you also have Indian descendants, Indian not in the native sense, but Indian from uh, the continent of of India because of indentureship. We also have Chinese populations. Uh, we have Lebanese populations. So it's very um, sort of quote-unquote racially diverse. But the variable of marginality doesn't come along those ethnic lines. It really comes in a lot of ways along livelihood lines. So occupation, right? You're a farmer, you're mm. a fisher, you're considered lower on the gotcha. uh, socioeconomic um, line versus someone who is probably in the professional sector, a teacher, a banker, a lawyer, etc. And so you start asking those questions about how you see the marginality and um, along occupation lines. What my research has shown is that you do see that marginality and you do see exposure um, varying because of, the, of where individuals live. And then also the way in which individuals may be able to respond to environmental threats, that also um, affects their marginality. So that's one of the main areas that I would say is the difference. The variable of race that's really prominent and important within the United States is not so much the variable, but rather livelihoods might be one of the main variables within the Caribbean context. Can you talk a little bit about some specific examples of environmental damage or environmental problems in the Caribbean um, that maybe disproportionately affect those marginalized communities? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a range. I'll start by saying probably the the most pressing right now um, that has formed my research has been climate change and the impacts of climate change have really um, shown itself to um, uh, to be disproportionate in whom is impacted, who's able to cope um, with uh, the impacts of uh, climate change, um, who's able to respond, who's able to recover uh, from the impacts of climate change. Um, and it varies at the country level, like which countries are able to get access to, to resources to be able to cope, prepare, respond, adapt. And then it also varies within country in terms of groups that are able to prepare, cope, adapt, and um, and respond. So when you think of uh, the impacts of climate change, the, the first one that should come to, I hope, most people's minds um, should be hurricanes. That was not the first one that came to my mind. Which one came to I'm your mind? terrible. I, I was thinking like <laughs> problems with crops or something like like Well, change. drought. Yes. Yeah. Drought is, is also um, a big one. So like it, within Jamaica... Our farmers have really experienced a significant amount of um, drought. Mm. And so um, they have been challenged to think about drought-resistant plants, for example. Um, But again, not all farmers are able to um, invest in drought-resistant crops. And so they feel the burden in in a real way. Uh, when they don't have access to um, to fresh water, to irrigation systems, to be able to continue their farming practices. Mm. And that is an impact of climate change. 
the other that I was just going to mention was um, storms and hurricanes, right? So, you know, within the last five years, five, six years, Hurricane Irma, Hurricane Maria. I mean, look at what happened in Puerto Rico. The response itself, right, even though um, Puerto Rico is considered a territory of the United States, the response was slow. It was lacking. And that's where the environmental justice piece comes in, right? Because why is it that you have a, a, a territory that's a part of the United States, but yet was treated as an outsider with respect to the response to climate change. So you have the impacts of climate change and thinking about who's able to respond, who gets access to, for example, international funding. Mm-hmm. Um, think of Dominica, for example, that experienced the effects of um, Hurricane Um, Maria, and they had to appeal to the international community to be able to get um, access to funding. Um, And they were able to to get some of that. They were able to recover, but they were able to recover because of the communal help of the Caribbean Caribbean community, as opposed to just relying on their own, uh, etc. So there's a wide variety. Um, uh, Volcanoes is another one. St. Vincent and the Grenadines, actually, uh, recently um, had another uh, flare-up of uh, Soufre. And so that particular um, volcanic eruption has um, impacted um, that particular uh, nation. So there are a number of different environmental threats, and those within the, the countries that um, uh, that have to respond, there are varying levels of capacity to mm. be able to respond. How do windmills play into it in the Caribbean. I ask this because it feels like this um, this one area where um, people looking for green energy and sustainable options run into issues where um, there's debate over the damage or the harm of the windmills either on um, uh, marine life or birds mm-hmm. or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. Is that something that is that something that is also impacting the Caribbean? I think when you start thinking about renewable energy, it's complicated within the United, uh, sorry, within the Caribbean. And the reason it's complicated is because these are small island developing states. And being small island developing states, land space is at a premium. And so that land space is, is being um, challenged for not just um, domestic life, meaning people residential, right, commercial, um, business, governmental, but also the tourism industry, right? And so you have um, islands that are attempting to build their economies. They want in, they have limited uh, limited land space. A lot of them are actually very hilly. So it's also very difficult to navigate that terrain. So while there is the potential for great renewable energy, solar, geothermal, um, and wind, the question becomes, where do we put these farms, right? Where do we put the solar farms? Where do we put the wind farms? Where do we put um, our geothermal um, installations? And so that's a real consideration that we have to take into consideration. The second is funding to be able to do this, right? Because renewable energy... Um, green energy is not cheap. While, yes, we would like to transition to towards those, it's not cheap. And so you have economies that were stifled 
right? As I mentioned, 500 years of colonialism. A lot of the independent countries are like 50-something years old, mm. right? They're not, they're not old countries. Like the United States is 200 plus years. They're not, right? And so you have young countries that are also, you know, basically young babies and trying to get their economies um, up and running. So they have to look for external funding. And because they're small, they may not always be the giants to be able to get access to that um, funding. And then the third is sort of um, addressing public perception of um, of renewable and getting the, the communities within the Caribbean to see the value um, in renewable um, energy and being able to switch off of um, hydrocarbons. So I'll give the example of Trinidad and Tobago, which is my home country. Trinidad and Tobago, because of its proximity to uh, South, the South American um, continent, actually has rich oil and gas reserves. And so that's what Trinidad's economy has been based on, hydrocarbon, fossil fuels. And so now you have a country that's an island state that has to think about well, we were able to build our economy on fossil fuels. How do we make that transition as an island state to renewable energy? But then you have islands up the chain that did not have access to uh, fossil fuels. And they also thinking about how do we transition? Barbados is a good example hmm. because they actually do um, solar energy really, really well. They're a really good case uh, for looking at how they have done um, solar energy. So it's different depending um, on the nation state. Um, but I would say that um, it's definitely a conversation that we have to continue having within the region. Hmm. So how do you identify the communities that you want to study and how do you go about collecting data and, you know, conducting this research? Right. Um, so there are different ways that I've approached my research as a scholar. Um, I have a, a general interest, as I said, within the uh, uh, in the maroon environment. Um, sorry, the marine environment. And so... What I have done is, um, particularly starting from my dissertation, was that I read the literature. I saw where there was a gap um, in communities, particularly in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, and from there, I went into some of the identified communities, went into some of them, and tried to build relationships. That took some time because I actually did research in a community that I was not familiar with. So it took some time to be able, it was on the southeast coast, you know, to go. I lived there within the community for a bit before I started to do my survey. You know, um, I actually build some, uh, we call them key informants through the government, being able to get access into the freshwater uh, community, um, the freshwater swamp community, et cetera. So there are different layers to kind of build in the relationship and then get in, into access into the community. Um, in my communities in um, Jamaica, what I've done um, was, again, I actually started at the governmental level. Um, I was very interested in fishers, um, and I wanted, one, to, to get access to a fishing community that um, was accessible, because sometimes um, our fishing communities are not, artisanal fishing is not always accessible. So I wanted an accessible um, community, and I also wanted a large a large fishing community because the ones that I did in Trinidad were very small. Um, and so I, I used the fishing um, uh, ministry in Jamaica to help me identify some of those. 
Um, and so, you know, people will be like, oh, it's not scientific because you, you went with convenience, but convenience and safety is actually really important when you're doing your research. And so Old Harbor Bay was the community that I end up um, navigating and picking. And that was valuable for the fishing, um, the fishing community, as well as the fishing industry um, there to be able to um, to have me do some research related to um, the, that fishing community. And then finally, I would say one of the approach that I take right now is that I build partnerships with local NGOs within um, communities or within the countries and then have them sort of help me navigate spaces that they think would be really important um, for research that might align with my interests. And so I'm able to do that now as I'm, you know, sort of a little deeper into my career. And so I do that a lot with Haiti because I'm unable to get back physically Mm. um, to Haiti. So I'm able to work with, uh, you know, an NGO partner there um, that's run by Haitians who are able to say, okay, this is the kind of research that we need access to. Might you be willing to partner with us? And that has been really um, enriching to help me identify the communities in Haiti that will um, really benefit from the research. Can you talk a little bit about your research in Jamaica and with those fishing communities? What were you looking to find out and what did you discover? Yes. So in Jamaica, my research was primarily on the perceptions of fishers to climate change. So I really wanted to understand um, what do fishers know about climate change? Because at the time, there was this perception that local communities are perhaps not aware of climate change, that they're not uh, responding to climate change, and um, that that was a problem. So I went in, and a lot of my research is survey-based research, I went in to um, to speak with um, these fishers to be able to determine their level of knowledge, Um, their perceptions and their behavior to climate change. And so um, that uh, first research that I did, and I did multiple, but the the first one that I did was over 200 um, fishers that um, I surveyed. And again, I partnered with local people to help me actually do the survey, even though I was physically doing it. I also hired local people to help me uh, because Jamaicans speak Patois and I could understand, but I can't speak. Um, and so um, I went in and, and the research really showed, you know, one, that fishers are knowledgeable about climate change. However, they don't use the scientific jargon of climate change. Sure. So they're not going to call it climate change, but they recognize very clearly that there is a change, that that change doesn't seem to be, quote unquote, natural. And by extension... They believe that um, they may not have been able to identify all of the scientific reasons as to why we're experiencing this shift in um, climatic events and those kinds of things, but they recognize clearly that there is something um, that's happening. Two, because they recognize that climate change is taking place, they had to adapt, right? And so their behavior has changed. And some of the tangible things that they were doing was that they were either reducing the amount of days that they were going out to sea because they were realizing that their fish migration patterns were changing with the warming of waters, um, or they would um, change their fishing grounds. And that had a safety concern because these are small artisanal fishers, and so you'd find them probably going further out to sea into deeper waters in order to try to get a catch for the week. 
Um, and that has safety concerns because they're really on these small artisanal boats that really are like double engine boats. Um, so that was one of their behavioral stuff. They started to rely a little bit more on the formal weather bulletins rather than um, their their local knowledge, yeah. right, of going and standing on the beach and looking at the the um, the cloud pattern and being like, okay, today's a good day to go out to sea. They were like, okay, no, we could no longer do that. We now have to rely on the mm. formal, um, you know, news and radio and, and, and those kinds of things. So there were different uh, patterns, uh, uh, behavioral patterns that they were um, sort of engaging um, engage in, in. So a wide range of, of things. Um, and uh, you did have a small subsection of uh, fishers that were very knowledgeable from the scientific perspective. And the reason for that was because there was an NGO that was coming into that particular fishers community and educating mm. um, fishers about climate change. And that I thought was also um, very fascinating uh, to be able to see that collaboration. So it wasn't a, an antagonistic relationship. It was actually a very uh, mutual relationship between the NGO and the fishers um, in getting them educated and, um, you know, talking about not just climate change, but broader fishing, um, fishing issues and fishing concerns. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Did you get to go fishing with them? I did not go fishing, but I definitely went out a couple of times on the on the boats, and it it was fun. You know, it was it was really fun. You know, like my one day I carried my I had a younger sister who studied in Jamaica, and so my fisher friend he put me you know at the front of the boat. Um, he put my sister at the back of the boat, and he said, "You sit at the front because the front you get the better ride." And my poor sister was in the back of the boat and she was completely drenched at the end of the ride. And I was dry and happy. And, and he was like, and then he laughed and he was like, you know, I treat you very well, <laughs> which, uh, which I appreciated. Nice. Um, so I think a lot of people in the U.S. obviously think of the Caribbean as like a vacation destination. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I'm curious the role that tourism industry plays either in exacerbating environmental issues in the region or, or maybe it helps. Maybe that brings funding to address things. I don't know. So I'm, I'm curious as the, the role of tourism there. Yeah. I mean, tourism, we would consider it an extractive industry. At least I would consider it an extractive industry. I'm not anti-development and anti-tourism by any stretch of the imagination, um, I'm a pragmatist, and so I, I realize that, um, you know, these economies have to develop. And, and for many of them, tourism has been the route that they have taken. There are beautiful beaches, lovely forested areas. I mean, the biodiversity is great. Um, it's really thinking about how do we manage resources to ensure that they're sustainable and that they're able to last for seven-plus generations, for each generation that there is an additional seven-plus generation that they can last. Mm -hmm. And so I think you have to look at tourism from multiple angles. I think the mass tourism model, um, which is what a lot of islands have used, um, have served them okay in the sense that they have gotten. So, for example, if you look at the Jamaican market, mass tourism, the all-inclusive, um, uh, you know, hotels, et cetera, that has been a model that has worked. But at what expense? Right. Um, some of the issues have been the privatization of beaches, for example, where local Jamaicans may not have access to 
um, to beaches. And is that really a just a just way, right? Like you're living on an island and you either have to pay to go to a beach or you are cut off from the beach and then you have these outsiders that come in and have full access mm. because, of course, you know, some outsiders do not want to have any interaction with um, with the, the people that live there uh, with the exception of um, sort of in a service type of uh, individuals like go down the whole the whole route of colonialism continued um so that's one of the the issues right and it, it may not sound environmental but it is because now you have individuals who have lost access to their resources to the physical environment um, and for many um, Caribbean people the beach is a place of solace right it's a place where families go um, you know the rivers are the place where families go um, etc so you have that. Um, of course, you would have marine pollution. Um, we've done a lot better with respect to that. Um, cruise ships is another another big issue, right? Where you have uh, you look at Saint Martin and you have you know two huge cruise ships that have thousands of people coming off onto a really really small island space. Um, so can you imagine the trash? You know the um, the uh, over overfill of individuals within the islands, etc. So that is also um, another concern that we have to take into consideration. And then you really want to start thinking about the carrying capacity of these resources. So when I say carrying capacity, um, what is the optimal number of tourists that um, a beach can support? What is the optimal number of tourists that um, Dunge River Fall in Jamaica, you know, a, a waterfall area can uh, really sustain. Um, you know, I'm not an environmental economist and there are, you know, um, models out there to be able to model that. But those are the kinds of things that you want to think about. And the final thing I'll say, there are multiple, but the final thing I'll say is like food security, right? What happens when you have um, tourism that is sort of, um, you know, relying on the local water supply, the local food supply, even though a lot of it is imported. And then what happens to the cost of food because um, of the importation of things in order to provide for the tourism sector, uh, but also the local economy, the local, sorry, uh, farming system that might be providing the best, quote unquote, best um, to the tourism sector and what is left over for your local uh, communities. Like I, I'm thinking in terms of like local fruits and um, and those kinds of things. So it, it's multidimensional. Um, so tourism, I'm not saying is, is you know, really, really bad, um, but there are implications and you have to think strategically about how do you manage, um, how do you manage these, right, in uh, on island states that kind of need them. Mm. In, you recently published a journal article with Rachel Baptiste Guerin. Mm -hmm. Any relation? Yes. Huh? <laughs> it's actually my sister. Oh, no. Is she the one that got wet on the boat? No. That's oh, okay, another one. one. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, she's from the University of uh, the People in Pasadena. That's right. In California. Um, and it was titled Unearthing the Decolonial Environmental Worldview, The Case of Jamaica. Yes. Tell us about that. So that's one of my my recent articles. I've I've shifted as as you said in my bio, you know, a lot of my work um, is at this intersection of environmental psychological variables. So I really attempt to understand how people are thinking about the environment, and I think 
That's important because if you understand how people think about the environment, it may have implications for uh, influencing their behaviors. And then by extension, you can then use that to influence policy, I'm hoping, in a positive way. But this particular paper, um, you know, I was very concerned about um, activism within the Caribbean and trying to understand how do self-identified environmental activists think about the work that they're doing. And the underlying tone for me was to really understand where is that motivation for doing environmental work coming from? So what is their value system, if any, that has driven them to do environmental work? Is it a happenstance, right? Or is it something that's deep within their value system that um, is kind of like their vocation that then led them down this road of a career? And so um, it was really to theorize how people are thinking and is there a typology, right? Is there one worldview that could characterize these environmental activists and the way in which they think about uh, environmental issues? And so that's where the DW came up, the decolonial environmental worldview, um, and having these five different variables, you know, and of course, you know, these these themes or these variables came out of the interviews that I had with some activists um, in Jamaica. Um, and so it was a start. It's not perfect. It's not, I would say it's not, um, you know, I we challenge scholars to really test this, to see if this could hold for even other Jamaican activists and even for other Caribbean activists, Right. Um, but the idea is that there are these five different variables that contribute to one typology or worldview that's called a decolonial environmental worldview. I call it decolonial environmental worldview because one of the, the things that was really important for me was to find out whether environmental activism or environmental work is coming from um, this notion of resistance and pushing back against the colonial state, particularly given our history in the Caribbean of colonialism and environmental activism, it is a form of resistance, right? It's a form of taking, um, taking back, you know, the ownership of the natural resource that is there, that is seen as ours. And so that's where the decoloniality is coming from, to try to understand whether individuals are really, um, you know, pushing back against this uh, colonial frame. Mm. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, indigenous communities in the Caribbean mm -hmm. and how they might be affected mm -hmm. um, by either environmental degradation um, or other changes um, to these islands. And I guess what are, are the, the things that they're facing and is there anything being done to address those concerns? Mm -hmm. So indigeneity in the Caribbean is complicated. Mm. Um, and there are several layers to indigeneity. So we would have had, um, we have our indigenous populations that would have been descendants of the Caribs and the Arawaks. A lot of those populations have now intermingled, of course, with our African population. So I'll give you 
because indigeneity is not sort of like a big part of my um, uh, my area of expertise, but I'll give you from my lived experience. So my great grandmother was a Carib descendant, and so she got married to my great grandfather, who is African, and so you see that sort of um, intermingling. Um, in Trinidad, the who we would consider the remnants of indigenous populations. There are two pockets of them. They live in the northern part and typically in the mountains. And that makes sense because that would have been their refuge, uh, particularly um, during the, um, the slavery and, um, uh, and colonial period. And their issues, apart from social issues of, you know, like poverty and just being uh, feeling neglected, etc., cetera, um, you know, they engage in farming. And so you would have um, some issues related to farming that are, um, that are really resonant with, with those communities. But then when you look at um, other island states, right? So for example, in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, you have the Garifuna. And the Garifuna is the descendants of, they call themselves Black Caribs. And so that is an indigenous population that's also facing um, you know, environmental harms and um, in my special issue that was published a few years ago on climate change, one of my um, colleagues, uh, she wrote a piece about how um, the Black Caribs are um, experiencing climate change and um, their experience there. But then you have, so you have Caribs and Arawaks, but then you also have Maroons. And so there is a big conversation right now within the within the um, the Caribbean as to whether Maroons should be considered indigenous. And so Maroons are the runaway slaves who would have escaped uh, slavery again to the mountains. So the environment became their refuge and became their home. And so there's a question um, as to whether they should be considered indigenous given the, their history and the length of time that they have really uh, lived on their own and, you know, um, formulated their own traditions, maintained some of their African um, traditions, um, et cetera, within the, the region. And their uh, environmental issues are also, um, you know, around surrounding the use of the environment, the resources that they have access to. Um, in Suriname, for example, the maroon population are facing issues of damming, um, hydroelectric uh, power that has, um, you know, either flooded some of their uh, villages or have um, left them without water downstream from the dams. Um, so those are just a taste of some of the uh, the issues with indigenous populations. Hmm. Are there any success stories or models of sustainable development or environmental justice mm -hmm. that um, that could be replicated mm -hmm. um, on uh, in other places throughout the Caribbean? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good one. Um, the The one that comes to my mind, you know, I serve on the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, which is an EPA federal advisory um, uh, advisory committee. Um, and that that advisory committee is phenomenal because it allows me to interact with literally people that are underground doing environmental justice work. And so this example I'm going to give is from one of my colleagues who has been doing some great environmental justice work in Puerto Rico um, after Hurricane Maria. I'm not going to call her name because I didn't um, 
I didn't ask permission, but she's been doing um, work on, um, you know, uh, mangrove revitalization, which is really important um, for um, hurricane protection, uh-huh. right, and storm protection. So the organization has been doing a lot of work there. Um, and um, she has given some good examples of um, the grid, right? So if you remember Puerto Rico uh, after Hurricane Maria, lots of people went off the electric grid, and there were major, major issues with that. Yeah. Um, and they took very long to be able to get back on the grid. And so what we're seeing now is a lot of communities uh, have gotten together, and they have, going back to your question about renewable, they have gotten together, looked for grants, and they have basically created microgrids so that their communities are now dependent on solar and they're able to have communal spaces. So if another storm hits as bad as Hurricane Maria, they're not waiting on the national system to get them back up and running. That has major implications for food, for health issues, um, et cetera. And they are able to get back online and they're not totally dependent on a state that they feel may have disappointed them. So I think that those are some good examples of what are being done um, in some um, particular uh, contexts. And then the, the last example I'll give is, for example, in Trinidad and Tobago, um, reforestation is a big, um, uh, a big deal. And so there is a, um, a community organization that I've taken students to, um, to visit and to work with and do service work in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, that does reforestation, and they have planted thousands of three trees over the 30 years that they have been doing the work. They have um, educated the community about forest fires and reducing the amount of forest fires that have um, taken place in the Northern Range. Um, so there are community members out there that are doing um, work. It's hard work. Sometimes it's not rewarding. Sometimes you don't get the fame, um, but they're doing it because of their passion for uh, the physical environment and to improve the um, the quality of life um, of their community members. So these are ju- just a few examples, um, you know, of my day-to-day uh, interaction that I can think of. Hmm. Are there any books that you would recommend for folks interested in uh, environmental justice in the Caribbean or just, you know, even just the history of the Caribbean itself? Anything you would recommend for folks? So books. Um, there are no books on environmental justice in the Caribbean, and I don't say oh, that. Oh, that sounds like an I opening. Don't, I don't say that lightly. Um, <laughs> you know, I am working on one called Climate Justice and the Caribbean. Um, you know, just started that. But I would say that there are some um, special issues. So, for example, um, my special issue uh, in Geoforum on climate justice and the Caribbean would be a good place to start because it gives some good examples of case studies um, and it's a little bit more current um, than from a book perspective. Um, and then there is a, my most recent special issue on um, environmental justice um, in the Caribbean that uh, it's 2023, which just published in the, the Geographical Journal. And it actually, um, you know, all our articles are now three months free. Um, people can get it free uh, for the next three months. So if individuals um, would like to um, read some of those articles, they're free to um, just Google the Geographical Journal Environmental Contours of the Caribbean, and they'll be able to uh, to find it. So I'm more of a journal person than a book person. Um, so I'll recommend those two for now. Not trying to to um, to self promote, but those are the the two that I would say 
um, collections that I think will give people a sense of environmental justice issues in the region. Nice. You've made it to question 13. So I try to ask something a little bit fun. Are there um, places in the Caribbean that, and, and should I say Caribbean or Caribbean? I, I feel like this is my constant struggle in my head, <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure what the correct answer is. I say Caribbean. Okay. Well, I'm going with that. There you go. All right. Um, is there a place in the Caribbean that you feel like is kind of um, an untouched gem or not untouched gem, but a, a, a kind of hidden gem where people um, don't travel to very often that you would encourage people to learn more about or to, to visit um, ethically and responsibly, of course? Yes, um, that's a great question. There are so many beautiful nuggets in the region. Um, most people think of Jamaica. Sure. Right. You know, Montego Bay or Chirios. But there are so many other beautiful nuggets. Again, I'll start with my home country, Trinidad and Tobago. If you ever get to visit Trinidad and Tobago, you want to visit both islands because they are very different. Trinidad is the larger island. And if you're interested in cultural, historical tourism issues, so things like you know, the old colonial buildings, if you're interested in music, a different genre of music, if you're interested in cultural festivals like Carnival, Ooh. Trinidad is the place that you want to go. Sold. Tobago, but then you have to go over to Tobago. Okay. Because Tobago has some nice beaches. I say nice, right? They have um, the second largest barrier reef in the Western Hemisphere. Right. So after Belize's Barrier Reef, you have uh, Tobago's Book Reef. So you want to get some relaxation there. And and then their local cuisine is very different from Trinidad. So you want to try crab and dumplings. You want to try, um, I know that it's going to sound weird, barbecue pigtails. Um, and you might want to go over for Tobago Heritage Festival, which um, they do. They have like a large, great race, a boat race between Trinidad and Tobago. And then they have a lot. Trinidadians are known for a partying. We call it fetting. Um, so you want to go over and enjoy and enjoy that. So, um, you know, two gems that, um, you know, are not always explored, but um, you can definitely enjoy um, you know, um, the experience from two very different perspectives. Well, if you ever need a research assistant, you know, <laughs> sign me up. I'm there. Yeah, I'm bored. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Professor Baptiste, thank you so much for, for joining the podcast today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This was fun. All right. Tell your friends and family about the podcast. If you have any questions at all, feel free to send a note to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com. 